Good morning. How's everybody doing? Super duper good. How do you feel about this? This looks nice. Hello. I'm Mr. Carl to the kids. To you, Mr. Carl. (laughs) My name is Carl. I am one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. Glad to be with you. Excited to look at God's Word with you this morning. Some of you already know me a little bit, and so you know that for the last 12, 13 years, I've been doing ministry, uh, and, but prior to that, I was a musician. I played French horn for a living. Uh, I'm not trying to brag. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, and before that, Little Caesars Pizza, restaurants, okay? Uh, some of you have heard stories from Little Caesars. Guess what? You're going to hear some more today. So in Little, in Little Caesars, I was working there in high school. Uh, hopefully, you already know what Little Caesars is, right? It's a pizza place, five bucks a pizza, whatever. They used to do buy one, get one free, and that was real cool, whatever, it doesn't matter. I worked there, okay? And uh, once I got there, I learned all the stuff. Learned how to wash dishes, learned how to make the dough, learned how to make the pizzas, learned how to cut them up, learned how to put them in the box, learned how to sell them to the customer, learned how to deal with somebody who's angry because they asked for pepperonis and we gave them anchovies, whatever, right? I learned all the stuff. Uh, and so after a year or two of working there, I got elevated to the position of closer, which means I'm the guy who gets to stay told close. It means I'm going to get the most hours and therefore get the most money. The only way you could do closing is if you know how to do everything. You're responsible enough that you can manage everything that's happening while the manager's over here counting money. You can deal with everything else. So one of the things that happened at the end of the night was you would throw away Whatever dough that was made and being ready for pizzas but was, had not yet been made into pizzas, now we're, we're closing, so we don't need it anymore, you throw it away. So you're taking all this dough and you're throwing it in the trash can, and the trash can gets heavy. And so as you need that trash can around the restaurant, you don't want to drag it to these various places places because it weighs 1,000 pounds because you pull this dough in it. So one of the other things you had to throw away at the end of the night was pizzas that got made, but the people that order it never showed up to pick it up. So you either got to keep it, take it home and eat it, or you just threw it away, okay? And so now I'm sitting here with all these pizzas that need to be thrown away, and the trash can's over there, and I don't want to drag it over here. So I learned this technique of taking these little grippy things, taking out the pan, taking my spatula, scoop, flip, in the trash can. All right? Doing this all the time, saving me tons of time. Trash can stays where it is. My boss sees me doing that and goes, hey, Carl, it's cool, but let's not do that. I'm like, okay. And as soon as he goes back to counting money, I do this for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. It's great. No problem. Then this one particular Friday night comes, and somebody calls in an order like 1040. It's like 20 minutes before we close the likelihood that they're actually going to show up and pick up this order is very small. But we make the pizzas anyway. They come out. We close. We wait 10 minutes. Nobody comes. We lock the doors. It's time to throw these pizzas away. These pizzas just came out of the oven. They're 400 billion degrees. Okay? Trash can's over there. And as soon as I flip it, my manager comes around the corner between me and the trash can. And this really, really molten hot lava pizza hits him in the chest. Now, he did this. He tore his shirt off like Hulk. 
And he was like, what are you doing? Ah! He's got this red circle, not from sauce, but because his skin has been burned. He's got this red circle on his chest. And I'm like, <sighs> so is that, is that the thing you didn't want me to do? Was, man, I'm real sorry, right? And so in this moment, I realized a couple of things. One, I should have listened to him when he was talking, right? He was giving me wisdom. He knew that there was some genuine potential danger in throwing pizzas across the room. I was 17. I was like, oh, there's no danger. It's fine. I know what I'm doing. So I believed that I knew better and that his advice, while good, and I certainly wouldn't do it while he's watching, I wouldn't actually follow it when he's not around. Just do what I want. It's not that important. It's not that big a deal. Now, I share that story because that is what's going on in our text today. Jesus has some commands for his people. He says, you need to listen to what I say, and you need to do it. And sometimes the people are like, nah, it's fine. It's no big deal. I won't do that while people are watching, obviously, but I'm not going to actually listen to the words of Jesus and apply them to my life in a similar way that me throwing pizzas across the room seemed like a perfectly fine thing. I was wrong, but it was too late. When the moment came, it was too late. I had already thrown the pizza, terrible things happened, and there was no way to undo it, right? So that's the point of our text today. Don't throw pizzas across the room. Write that in your notes. So we've been talking through the book of Matthew, going through there verse by verse, as is our way, right? And since the middle of June, right, since the beginning of summer, we've been in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous and most studied of all sermons, and rightly so. It's delivered by Jesus Christ himself, and so now... Today, we finally come to the conclusion of the sermon, and next week, we will continue on with Matthew's gospel in chapter 8. So let's do this. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Gracious Father, we love you. We're thankful for you. You are sovereign, and you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. And we've got nothing to fear, nothing to be anxious for. Yet we confess that we are fearful and we are anxious about many things. So we come to your throne this morning boldly and we ask with great hope that you will, by the power of your spirit, dig deep into our hearts and remove the wickedness that lies there, filling us instead with the peace that surpasses understanding. We plead with you to meet with us this morning as we worship you. Give us hearts that genuinely submit to you, knowing that you alone have what we need. Jesus, you are the author and you are the perfecter of our faith, and we ask you give us joy in our salvation this morning, salvation that belongs to you and you alone. We've done nothing to earn it, certainly undeserving of such a gracious gift. We pray that we would be lifted in spirit this morning to worship and adore you for the incredible grace and mercy that you've shown to us lowly sinners. Lord, we ask you to take our eyes off of ourselves and help us instead to gaze upon your glory and your majesty and the beautiful knowledge that you are coming again. And when you do, all will be set right. Everything that's broken will be healed. Everything that was messed up will be mended. Everything crooked will be made straight. All the suffering and weeping will be no more. So as we read and we study these last words of your sermon in Matthew's gospel, we plead that you will give us understanding so that we may better know and better love you, and that that might result in worship that is pleasing to you. 
Forgive us where we sin, Lord. Renew a right spirit within us that we might exalt your name together, that name, Prince of Peace, our great shepherd, our Lord, our Redeemer, the Son of God, the only begotten one, the King of Kings, Emmanuel, Jesus the Christ. That name is infinitely worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory forever. Amen. Okay, let's look at the text once more, but this time we're going to stop at verse 27. We're going to look at 24 to 27, and then we'll look at 28 and 29 toward the end. So, verses 24 to 27. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So let's refresh our memories about what's going on here, right? Jesus is preaching a sermon primarily to his disciples, but there are these great crowds that have gathered around him and are listening to him teach. Now, it's a geographical likelihood that this Sermon on the Mount was really just like on a sloping hillside, not a mountain like we would think of today. Uh, but it's not nearly as catchy to say Sermon on the Slope. So it's too late to change it. Sorry, printed in your Bibles. Sermon on the Mount, okay? Now he's teaching about the kingdom of God and what it takes to be a part of it. Jesus gets more and more explicit through his sermon about what is required to enter the kingdom, saying things like, you must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which would have seemed impossible to these listeners. But he also tells them to come to God and to ask for what they lack, which would include that very righteousness that he says they must have. So these verses that we're looking at this morning aren't very mysterious, right? Jesus' analogy about houses is fairly easy to understand. But let's pick it apart a little bit anyway. Verse 24, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So he starts off by saying, everyone who hears, who's that? Everybody there with him when he's preaching the sermon, as well as everyone who then hears his words later by reading the scriptures, everyone who reads the book of Matthew, right? So once those words are heard, something then must be done with them. You either choose to follow Jesus and do what he says, or you don't. And Jesus is separating these two groups in this text. Then he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, right? He says, these words of mine, he's, what words is he talking about? Well, he's talking about all of his teachings, which generally are encapsulated in this sermon. But in the, he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount in particular. And he says, these words of mine, he's claiming authority here. He's not saying, God says this. He's saying, these words of mine, the things I tell you. And that would have been unusual for a rabbi, for a Jewish teacher to claim his own authority. Jesus did this all the time. But it was still surprising and shocking for a Jewish audience to hear it. He'd already done it a bunch in this sermon, right? We heard a bunch of sermons about how he said, you have heard it said this, but I tell you this, right? You've heard God say in the Old Testament these things, but now I tell you these things, right? And he wasn't saying, I'm giving you new commands. I'm changing what God has said. He's making it more clear that A, he has the authority to do so because he is God. And B, you guys have not quite understood what God said. I'm going to try to help you understand better. So he says, who, who hears these words of mine and does them? What does it mean to do them? It means to be obedient. Do what he says. Follow Christ. 
Other translations would say, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, or he who hears these words of mine and acts on them, right? So he who does the things that Jesus is commanding. So he who hears the words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So he's saying building a house on rock is wise, right? But it's important for us to notice whose house is getting built, the builder. He who builds his house on the rock. He's not a contractor building a house for somebody else. He's building his own house. He's got some skin in the game. This house and its success or failure has a dramatic effect on the person who's doing the building. Verse 25. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So the rain and the floods and the winds come and they beat on this house. He's essentially saying the worst possible storm you can imagine. Imagine the worst kind of weather that might damage a structure, tornado, a hurricane. These kinds of things are what he's referring to, some awful storm that would come and potentially destroy a structure. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So the sturdiness of the structure, the sturdiness of the house, the ability for that house to not be knocked down is dependent on the foundation upon which it's built. That's what he's saying. Then verses 26 and 27 are literally the opposite, the other side of the coin. 26 is almost identical to 24 with a couple of different words. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man rather than a wise man who built his house on the sand rather than the rock. So he's saying the same thing. He's saying, if you were to build a house on the sand, that would be foolish, and that's what it would be like for you to listen to what I'm saying and not do it. And then 27, the rain fell, floods came, and winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So 25 is the same as 27. The rain comes, the floods come, the wind comes, beats against that house. Both houses endure the same situation. But the second house, built on bad foundation, falls. And not only does it fall, but great was the fall of it. The stakes are high. The consequences are great. There's a great crash, a complete ruin. There's nothing left. This house has been utterly destroyed. So we're stopping here at 27, and now we're going to consider these four verses together before we go on to 28 and 29. So first, let's unpack this analogy that Jesus has made, right? The houses that have been built on rock and built on sand represent us, our lives. You and I, we are the houses, right? Each of us builds a life for him or herself, and this is the house in Jesus's analogy, the house that you build, the kind of life that you build for yourself, The foundations of those houses represent what those lives are centered around or on, what our life's focus is, what we live for, what's the most fundamental thing about us. That's the foundation of the house. And then the storm that comes and bashes against these houses represents final judgment. Now, there are interpretations that would suggest that the storms that come represent the difficulties of life, the sufferings and tragedies that we deal with throughout our life. And if we're built on the firm foundation of Jesus, then we can withstand those difficulties of life. And that's certainly true, and it's certainly applicable, but Jesus is not making that particular point. Jesus is talking about final judgment. Jesus is talking about when he returns and there is the wrath of God that's going to be poured out upon sin, will that wrath be poured out upon the sinner or upon Jesus? That's what he's been talking about throughout the sermon. So it's not wrong to say 
that the storm it represents the difficulties that we might experience, but that's not Jesus' main point. Jesus' main point is when the storm comes, that's God's wrath coming for sin. Will you stand and remain when judgment day comes? So Jesus' sermon is a lot about the final judgment and what God's people should look like in light of the knowledge that God's wrath against sin is indeed coming. Let's take a look back in case you might have missed it or forgotten it in the previous sermons. The sermon starts with the Beatitudes and says things like, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When shall they find ultimate comfort? In the final judgment, when Jesus returns, when all things are made new. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When will they inherit the earth? When Jesus comes back, when the final judgment comes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When shall we be fully satisfied with our righteousness? When shall our righteousness be completely fulfilled and complete? In the judgment, when Jesus returns. Then he talks about giving to the needy, and he talks about fasting. And in both of those places, he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. When will we receive these rewards that are stored up for us in heaven? On the final judgment, when Jesus returns. He talks about the narrow gate and the broad way. He talks about there are few that will find this narrow way that leads to everlasting life. And there are many that will take this broad path that leads to destruction. He's talking about what will take place at the final judgment. He talks about the tree and the fruit. He says the tree that bears bad fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a reference to final judgment. Those who do not put their hope in Christ will be cast away from him. And last week, Jesus said, on that day, what day? Judgment day. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus has been weaving the theme of judgment, final judgment throughout this sermon, and he's getting more and more explicit about it. He's saying, if you center your life on him, if you center your life on me, Jesus says, then your house will have been built upon the rock. If your identity is Jesus, if you strive to walk in obedience to his commands, if you do not trust in yourself and your own abilities, but only trust in him, if your hope is in Christ, then your life will have been built upon the rock, the rock of ages, Jesus Christ, and you will be saved from the terrible storm of God's judgment. Now, again, it is certainly true that this would also result in you having what you need to withstand the storms of life. Right? The difficulties and sufferings of this life do come against those who have built their house upon the rock of Jesus. We are not, we are not spared suffering in this life. These things do come, and they do have what they need. Those who have put their hope in Christ do have what they need to not collapse under the strain of those circumstances. Those whose foundation is Jesus, they are better equipped to deal with the strain of deadly illness and financial ruin and the turmoil of relationships that are broken by sin. But that ability to withstand the storms of life is a secondary issue, a blessing that comes along with Jesus' main point, and that is that the storm in his analogy is not the difficulties and sufferings of life, but rather the eternal judgment for sin that is coming. So if your life is built around Jesus, then you are like a wise man who built his house on the rock. On the other hand, if you center your life on anything else, if you find your identity in your own strength, in your own skills, your work, your money, your social status, your business acumen, even your relationships with family and friends, which are good things, 
then your life will have been built upon something that cannot save you from the storm of God's judgment. Your house is then built on sand, which cannot stand up to the storm. There's only one sure foundation. Jesus alone can be the foundation of a life that can stand up to the incredibly high standard of God's judgment. Jesus is telling us that you can be wise and build your, house, your life around him, or you can be foolish and build your house, build your life around anything else. Now, there's more for us to learn than just understanding the analogy clearly. We've got to remember that today's text is not separated from or divorced from last week's text, right? The way that we're looking at this sermon, the way that we've slowly been walking through this Sermon on the Mount is not the way he delivered it, right? Jesus didn't say two or three verses and then say, whew, you guys, that's a thick nugget of wisdom. I'm going to just ruminate on that for like a week and I'll meet you back here next Sunday and I'll give you a little more. No, he just keeps preaching, right? So let's be sure that we're not failing to connect this analogy that he's giving us here at the end of the sermon with what he said previously. One of the main points last week was this idea that it is possible to do good and faithful things with wrong heart motives. Jared preached last week about Jesus saying that the only ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven are those that do the will of his father. But then Jesus says that there will be those that come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Well, from our perspective, sounds like they're doing good stuff. Casting out demons, doing many mighty works, performing miracles. That sounds great. But Jesus says to them, I never knew you. So it must be that in order to do the will of the Father, like we heard last week, and for us to hear his words and do them, like he's talking about this week, that there must be something more to that than just the action. There must be something more than just doing the thing. Because God wants your heart. God wants a changed heart. He, was, he doesn't just want changed behaviors. Changed behaviors are birthed out of a changed heart. But an unchanged heart can still do good actions. And so this is not a new idea that Jesus is purporting, right? We see this throughout the scriptures. This idea that God is after your heart, not just your behaviors. God told Samuel about this idea directly when he sent him to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king that would replace Saul, right? Samuel thought, surely, it must be this oldest, tallest, strongest son standing before me. But God told Samuel in chapter 16, verse 7, he said, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And God ends up choosing this smaller, weaker son, David, to be the king. And David does indeed grow up and become the king. And he understood for himself that God is after his heart. God is more concerned with your heart than he is your behaviors. In Psalm 51, David is praying to God after he's been confronted by Nathan. Nathan came to him and rebuked him for committing adultery with Bathsheba and then ending up sending her husband intentionally to the front lines of battle so that he might be killed. He essentially murders her husband. He asks God in his prayer to fix the problem of his heart because he knows that that's what God is concerned with. In verse 10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So David understood that God's desire for a heart change 
was the thing that he wanted. He also understood this change of heart is something that must be done by God. David could not fix his own heart. He had to go to the source. Fix my heart, God. It's broken. And then in the New Testament, we see in the book of Acts, a man who's called Simon the Magician. This guy professed faith in Jesus, and then he saw the apostles laying hands on people and praying for them, and then the Holy Spirit would come upon them. He's like, oh, man, that's cool. I want some of that. And he offered the apostles some sweet, sweet cash. He's like, hey, man, let me give you some, some money. You give me that. I want to be able to do that. I want to pray for people and give them the Spirit. Here, how much does that cost? Right? And Peter responds to him. Peter responds to this offer of money. Acts 8, verses 20 to 24. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. So Peter rebukes Simon the magician, but he doesn't say, bro, you're doing it wrong. Do better stuff. He says, your heart is wrong, and pray that God would fix it. So in Jesus' analogy with these houses, we are like the wise man who built his house upon the rock, and we'll be safe from that final day of judgment if we hear his words in this sermon and we act upon them. But it is implicit, based on what he just said before that, that doing what he commands must come along with the right heart. So we must now then examine ourselves. To stick with Jesus' analogy, we need to examine our house carefully and plead with God to change us where we fail to honor and do the words of Jesus. Think about that. What, is, what do those two houses even look like after they get built? One's on the sand, one's on the rock. You finish building them. Do they look significantly different? No. Right? The foundation gets covered up once the house is built. You can't see what it's built upon necessarily. These houses look basically the same. But if I built my house on the sand, and I want you to think I'm built on the rock, that's pretty easy to do. Right? Just put a little plaque over the door with some Joshua verses. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Hang some crosses in the living room. Take all the PG-13 movies and stick them in the closet when people come over. Right? It's very easy to look like my house is built upon the rock. But Jesus has already made it clear that we cannot do the right thing with the wrong heart. And so that means that mere actions are not good enough. Upholding sound doctrine is not good enough. God is after our hearts. Even Satan knows the truth about Jesus, and he can dress himself up to look like an angel of light. And so here's the point. With Jesus, this is an all or nothing thing. Either you are hearing his words and you are doing them, and therefore you're wise, and you will withstand the storm of God's judgment, or you're hearing his words and you're not doing them, and therefore you are foolish, and you will not withstand the storm of God's judgment. There's no in-between. So once again, like he's done again and again and again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us where the standard is. He's shown us what the expectation is, and it seems like it's out of reach. Hear my words, do them. I don't always do them. Now what? Obey me. I don't always obey you. 
Now what? Well, if we examine our lives carefully, we're going to find that none of us are built completely on the rock. None of us actually obey his words perfectly. And we know this already. The scriptures tell us none is righteous. No, not one. So all of us have failed to measure up. The group of people who fall short includes literally everyone who's ever been born, with the exception of one, Jesus himself. So this huge group of unrighteous people is divided into two groups. First, those who do not believe on Christ, those who have not built their house upon the rock. Their hope is somewhere else. They trust in themselves. I will do it. I will pull myself up by my bootstraps. I will get this done. I will make my way in the world. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need faith. I don't need religion. I don't need anything. I got this. The voices of the world are loud, and they've embraced those voices. What does the world say? What does our culture tell us? Culture says a lot of things. Culture tells us that if we work hard enough, then we'll be successful, and we can avoid pain and difficulty. But the Bible says that you should work to the glory of God, and that you cannot avoid difficulty and suffering. That suffering is indeed coming for you. Culture tells us that we should create our own identity and that that identity will be found in our sexuality or our occupation, our career, our gender, on and on. But the Bible says your identity should be found in Jesus alone. Like Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. My identity is no longer my own, but Christ who lives in me. That's my identity. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul is saying, I'm no longer Paul. Paul's dead. Paul's been crucified. Christ now lives in me. My identity is in him. My life is centered around him. I have built my house upon the rock. Culture tells you that you should listen to your feelings above all else and that everybody else should capitulate to those feelings because those feelings represent truth. But the Bible tells you that your heart is deceitfully wicked above all else and should not be trusted. God's word is the source of truth, not your feelings. And so those that are lost and without faith have put their hope, built their house around something other than Christ. And they're prone to embracing the call of culture on their lives instead of rejecting it. Their houses are built on sand. This group also includes those who do not genuinely believe in Christ, but they see value in looking like they do. They attend church. They say they read their Bible. They tell people that they pray. But their hearts are far from Christ. They've learned the language of Christianity. They've learned to do some of the things that look like holiness. These are the people that Jesus was talking to last week. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did not we do mighty works in your name? Look at all this cool stuff we're doing for you, Jesus. These people, too, have built their house upon the sand. And their hope is in themselves, just like the first group. But they've learned how to blend in with the Christian culture to make themselves look a little better. Rather than receiving the righteousness from Jesus that he has earned, they are self-righteous. I will produce my righteousness. I will stand before God blameless because I will earn it. I'm good enough on my own. 
They're like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14, which reads, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So this group, this group that Jesus is saying builds their house upon the sand are self-righteous and even sometimes, oftentimes, self-deceived. The second group are those who truly love Jesus. But when they examine their lives, they find many shortcomings, plenty of evidence that they are at times willing to put something else ahead of their Savior, and this grieves them. They earnestly desire to trust and to obey God, but they don't always succeed. When these people see that they fall short, they run to Jesus They don't try to muster up new courage and new strength and new righteousness for themselves. They run to him knowing that his blood covers their sins, that his righteousness is theirs. They take refuge in God, knowing that he's declared them to be righteous. And these people are like the tax collector in in that Luke 18 passage who cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So for both of these groups, as Jesus is separating them out, People who build on the sand, people who build on the rock. The ones who build on the sand will not be able to withstand the final judgment. The ones who build on the rock and build themselves upon Christ will. But for both of those groups, right, the first one, the unbelievers, some of whom who don't care about God at all, others who give lip service to their faith but are far from God. And the second group, the genuine believer who earnestly desires righteousness but falls short on his own. Their problem is the same. And their solution is the same. The problem is a sinful heart, and the solution is Jesus. One embraces that solution, and the other rejects it. That solution plays out by the Holy Spirit illuminating the truth of God's word to a sinner so that they come to understand and believe what the scriptures teach about Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives to that sinner a heart of flesh in exchange for their heart of stone that now craves love and affection from their Savior that hates sin when they once loved it and loves God where they once hated him. And if we're going to use it in the analogy that Jesus is giving us, the Spirit gives them a foundation of rock to replace their foundation of sand. When this solution is applied to the sinner, they come to an understanding of the truth of who Jesus is and his authority, which brings us to the final two verses of chapter 7. Verse 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Matthew's finished telling us what Jesus had to say in the sermon, and now he's making a comment here at the end. He's saying the people heard him and were astonished. Right? He, they couldn't believe it. The difference between the authority that the people had been used to and what they were experiencing with Jesus was profound 
and significant. At Little Caesars, when I just started working there, I'd been there like six months, like my sophomore year of high school, first job ever. I had been there six months or so, and I'd learned just enough to be a reasonable employee. I wasn't running around like a dummy. I knew kind of what I was doing, but I wasn't good at my job yet. I just did the stuff they told me to do as best I could. And I'd kind of graduated around the room. The, the, the way things worked was in the back, you made the dough, and over here they made the pizza, and they stuck it in the oven, and it comes through the oven. And when it comes out of the oven, you stand here, and you take the pizzas out, and you cut them up. The guy who does this is like the good, the, the, I don't know, best employee. I don't know. That's what I thought, because that's what I did the most. Let's pretend like that's true. The best employee was the guy cutting the pizzas. Me. <laughs> What's up? So I'm doing my thing, taking pizzas out of the oven, scooping them out, choppy chop, put them in the thing, sending them out. And this Friday night, this guy walks in the back door, which was locked, and you had to have a key to get in. So he walks in the back door, and I see him out of the corner of my eye because he's wearing like real nice slacks, real fancy Italian leather shoes, a real nice matching belt, this really fancy dress shirt, you know, like with the white cuffs and the white collar and this like fancy tie, silk tie, looking real sharp. Got his hair. And he just walks in, gold chain, little chest hair. <laughs> and he walks in and he just starts watching everybody. He's watching me. I'm taking pizzas out of the, what's this guy doing? Who is this guy? He just watches me for like 20 minutes. And after like 20 minutes, he starts rolling up his sleeves what is he doing? Who is this dude? And he comes over and goes, hey, man, you're doing a pretty good job. Let me show you a couple things that will help make it faster and more efficient. I'm like, okay. So he gives me some pointers, gives me some tips on how to be a better pizza cutter boy, which actually worked. Then he starts telling me about the history of the company. He starts telling me about what the hopes and dreams of Little Caesars are, what kind of product they want to serve, how they hope to take good care of their customers so they can end up making good profit. And the more he talks, the more I'm like, this dude, this dude has some sort of authority. This guy knows what's up. This guy is Mr. Caesar, I think. <laughs> right? I don't know who he is. Nobody's told me who he is yet. He hasn't really told me who he is. But he's talking with a lot of authority. And I wanted to listen to him. I wanted to do what he told me. I didn't even know who he was yet. My boss is around the corner counting money, doing stuff. After a while, it becomes clear he's the owner. He owns the franchise, and he owns like six other franchises in the area, and he occasionally pops in and does his thing. But what the people were experiencing and what Matthew wants us to see is that the people heard Jesus speak, and they said to themselves, something's different, something special. He's speaking to me as one with authority. It's not what I've heard before. I'm hearing something new. I want to listen. I want to follow. Things are happening. Hearts are changing. Matthew is wanting us to see what Jesus is doing. So, here's the question. Do you hear Jesus' teaching? And do you experience what the crowds in Galilee experienced? Do you hear his teaching and recognize his authority? And if so, how do you respond? Which of those two groups do you fall into? Is your house built on the rock? Is your house centered on Christ, or is it on the sand of your own strength and your own righteousness? Maybe you are a believer in Christ whose house is built on the rock. And if so, I've got some questions for you. 
Do you hear his Sermon on the Mount and do you find great conviction that in spite of your best efforts, you fall significantly short and that you must appeal to his mercy and his grace that have been so freely given to you? I hope that the answer is yes. Do you see that this reality of trying as hard as you can to be faithful and to be obedient, to do the words of Christ as he says, while still not measuring up and then having Jesus measure up for you is at the very heart of the good news of the kingdom? Do you recognize that the reason you fall short in the first place, that you don't always measure up, is because the stain of sin remains? Do you see that in those moments of failure, to do the words of Christ like he's commanding, your failure is because your wicked heart doesn't even want to follow him. You don't want to be obedient, and so you aren't. And that the solutions to all of those problems aren't you doing better. The solutions to those problems are pleading with your God to change you, which he promises to do. He is shaping and molding his people into the image of his son day by day. Do you recognize that and embrace that? Hopefully your answers are yes. But let me say this to you, Christian. Continue. Continue to love God and to hate your sin. Continue to repent and to walk by the Spirit. Continue to rejoice in your salvation that was freely given to you as a gift, not that you deserve it. You don't. Continue to earnestly seek to obey the words of Christ. Continue to celebrate the goodness and the mercy and grace of your God this morning. Pray that you would be used by him to tell others about the joy that you have found. Continue to find comfort and hope in the knowledge that your house is indeed built on the rock, even though it might feel sandy at times. Remembering that the measuring stick for your righteousness is not how you feel about things. The measuring stick for your righteousness is Jesus himself, not how well you've performed. You're not earning righteousness by being successful and obeying the words of Jesus. You are counted as fully and completely righteous because of him. And so your obedience to his commands is the way that you honor him and the way you honor that gift of righteousness that he earned for you. Perhaps you're an unbeliever, but you like to think of yourself as a Christian. You come to church every Sunday, smiling, shaking hands, going to Bible studies, all while believing in your heart that righteousness is obtainable by you and your work. Apart from Jesus, you can get there. Do you believe that if you try hard enough, if you do good enough deeds, if you do enough of them, that your house will remain standing when the storm of God's judgment comes? Do you think that as long as you keep your sins hidden from others and nobody can see it, you look good and strong and faithful, that you'll be able to somehow fool God? Do you think that Jesus, do you see that Jesus has told you that you can do many mighty works in his name, but he will say he never knew you? Or maybe you're an unbeliever and you know it. You're not trying to pretend. You're not trying to play games. You typically don't believe this stuff at all, but this morning you're here for whatever reason and the Holy Spirit has made you aware of your sin. You see that you're a sinner, that you offend God, that your sin is wicked, your rebellion against him is pervasive and you understand you can't do anything about it. 
can't do anything to fix it. The solution for all of those people is the same. Repent. Repent and embrace the gift of faith. Romans 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So here's the bottom line. Examine yourself. Examine your house. Repent of sin. If God is gracious and reveals to you that you are indeed built on sand, then stop boasting in your own righteousness. Stop pretending like your sand is actually rock. You're missing out on the greatest joy by knowing Jesus truly and being fully known by him. He loves you. He loves you. And he desires that you would turn to him and receive this gift of faith that he wants to give. But your hands are full. Your hands are full of idols and you can't take the gift. Let go of your idols, your work, your accomplishment, your social status, your bank account, your physical appearance, your house, your car, your clothes, your kids, even your church attendance. None of those things are an adequate substitute for actually knowing the king of the universe. This God who made everything, who's in charge of everything, in his infinite love, he sent his son. Jesus, the Christ who comes and lives a perfect life, sinless, earning righteousness, this ability to stand before God, spotless and blameless. He's earned it, and his desire is to give that to you. And he dies this horrible death on a cross to make payment for your sin, which he wants to count for you. He wants to take from you this thing that you cannot do and make payment for sin. He wants to give to you this thing you cannot earn, this righteousness. He wants to do that. And then he rose from the grave. He stopped being dead in victory over sin and over death. This is what the love of God has accomplished for you. That's the only way you can be saved. It is the only way that your house will actually be built upon the rock. If you recognize you cannot save yourself, stop chasing lesser things. Hear the words of your Savior who bids you to come and receive this gift of salvation that he's earned for you. He gives it freely to all who will forsake their allegiances to everything else, including themselves, and bend the knee to King Jesus. Build your house upon the rock, the rock of ages, Jesus Christ, nothing else. Have your life centered on him so that not only will you be better equipped to handle the sufferings of this life, but more importantly, and to Jesus' point, that you may stand firm on the day when God's wrath comes in judgment for sin. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you because you are good, because you are gracious, because you are merciful. And so as we wrap up this sermon of your son, we ask for you to help us see rightly. Not that we would have false condemnation, false guilt, but that we would embrace the reality and the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that their houses will stand firm when that day of judgment comes. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give great conviction to all of us who need it for sin that needs to be repented of. 
but also that you would give great joy to those who do have their houses built on the rock, even if they're fearful that they don't. Lord, will you give us wisdom to see the difference? Will you give us clarity so that your word will truly penetrate our hearts this morning and that we will be convicted of our sin and that we will celebrate our Savior? We love you. We thank you that you love us. And we pray in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.